Thanks, choir, and thank you, Johnny, for standing in and playing for us today. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that now as we turn to your word, we would hear your voice speak, that you would have a message for us that helps us to live as we ought, to know what is of supreme importance and to give our lives to it. So bless us now as we seek to hear from you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So perhaps this morning's sermon is slightly different from what you're used to. preach what you preach and you ask the Lord to decide why he has put this message on your heart or what's going to happen with it. Uh, my plan is to set aside Peter's threefold denial and to deal with it the start of the new year as we bring our John's series to an end and as we look at Peter's threefold uh, restoration to look at those two things together. God willing, next week, Scott will help us to look at how Jesus stands trial before the Roman authorities and Pilate. And so this morning, we're going to look into the little bits of the passage that Brian read for us that speak of Jesus before the high priest. And again, remember the context, what's been happening in this gospel account. Last Sunday morning, we saw how Judas, the betrayer, led this vast cohort of soldiers certainly numbering into the hundreds who came to seek out Jesus. But but Jesus willingly gives himself into their hands. He allows himself to be arrested because there was no other way he could be taken captive. We read verses 12 to 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for all the people. Perhaps you have wondered to yourself, or maybe even thought, wouldn't it be great if, if only God were moving in miraculous ways among us? Wouldn't it be a great witness to the power of Jesus Christ if as his people came together, we would see signs following, people being healed, miracles being worked. Surely people would then come and flock to the church in fear. But the evidence suggests that that's simply not the case. Those who divert their attention to the cares and the concerns of the world. Those who are uh, primarily focused on their careers or their personal comforts. They grow completely insensitive to the evidence of God working around them, even in miraculous ways. A crowd come to the night garden and they find Jesus. But even as they found him, they did not experience the truth that was in him. They were spiritually blind. A miracle was worked. The severed ear of Malchus was repaired and restored. Those same miracle working hands within moments were then bound. They were dragged off, ultimately to receive the crucifying nail. Of the cross. Miracles are amazing, and we pray that God would work miracles in our midst, but they do not open the eyes of those who will not see. So Jesus is arrested. He's led to the home 
a man called Annas, who in this section is variously called the high priest, and then next minute he's the high priest's father-in-law, which is a little bit confusing. We need to think, why did he go to the house of Annas first? Well, what we don't find in our text, but let me help you by telling you what was going on here, was that Annas was like the, the godfather of the Sadducees. He had served as high priest from 6 to 15 AD. He was given that position by a man called Quirinius, who was governor of Syria at that time, and you will remember him, and you'll hear his name in a few weeks' time at our Christmas carol services. And he then had been deposed by the Roman authorities. And in turn, one after the other, four of his sons were given the role of high priest. And now the current high priest was his son-in-law. But nonetheless, the power of Annas remained deeply significant. Nothing could happen within the temple courts without his stamp of approval. So because Annas was high priest, and you know the titles sometimes stick, he was always considered to have that role. We've got to ask why. Why did these people have such power, such influence in the life of the church, the people of God of that day, the Jews of the first century? Well, you've got to go way back, way back to the book of Exodus when God commanded Moses to appoint Aaron, his brother, and his sons to select them from the tribe of Levi to be in succession priests before God and in their time to offer appropriate sacrifices as part of their worship. It was deemed to be a a huge sin to allow anybody who wasn't from that family line to serve in the priesthood. So if you know your Old Testament, you'll remember that after Saul was king, David was king, Solomon was king. At the end of Solomon's reign when he died, there was a division in the kingdom. Ten tribes in the north given the name Israel. Two tribes in the south called Judah, Judah and Benjamin. And the ten tribes were ruled by a man called Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And at that time, to stop people going back to to Jerusalem, which was within the tribe of Judah, Jeroboam set up two places of worship in Dan and in the very north and Bethel in the south of his kingdom. And we read in 1 Kings 12, 31. Jeroboam also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And 1 Kings 13, 33 Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this was a terrible sin, because God had said, only from the descendants of Aaron, only from the tribe of Levi, no one else was allowed to have this rule. No one else was allowed to be the high priest. And the high priest was appointed the head of the family of Aaron, and he would have that rule until his death, and then his eldest son would succeed him. So we have this very dramatic scene in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. This journey up a mountain. Moses, his brother Aaron, and Moses' nephew Eleazar, Aaron's son. They, they walk to the top of a mountain, Mount Hor. And there 
the, the robes, the symbolic robes of the office of the high priest were removed from Aaron and put on Eleazar. And there, Aaron died. Just think about that journey. Walking up the mountain knowing you were not to return. But that was God's intent. That was God's purpose for that priesthood and the role of high priest. Now by the first century where our text finds us, things had changed. And the position of of high priest was reserved to those who belonged to a sect of Judaism known as the Sadducees. Those who, who had this great claim that they were descendants of Zadok the priest from a thousand years before And it's quite difficult to make comments about the Sadducees and and really to explain who they were because they never wrote anything down. And anything that's written about Sadducees was written by people who were their arch enemies and, and that tends to jaundice their perspective. But we know something. And they had this great claim that they had risen to power because they were a pure priestly family. They could trace their lineage all the way back to Aaron. But they maintained their power because they were very eager to adopt the prevalent culture, the Greek or the Hellenistic culture of the day. So they were in. They were just the way they ought to be for that age. They had imbibed the spirit of the day. And their power was also underpinned by their willingness to cooperate with the Roman powers. They made political cooperations. And so we see these three things. A religious elitism, a, a cultural integration, and a, a political accommodation. And if you take time and you look through history, you will see many, many times over the centuries, people have risen to positions of power because they've been willing to do those three things. They'd be willing to consider themselves to be better than everyone else, a religious elite. They've been able to integrate with culture and they have found a political uh, accommodation. And every time that happens, people rise to immense power, but it never, ever glorifies the name of Jesus. So this small little group of immensely powerful people, really influential people, the Sadducees, held sway in Judaism at that time. And they had a very particular theological understanding. They said that they held literally to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis and Deuteronomy. They didn't really have much time for any of the rest of the Old Testament, but they said, no, we we believe in, in Genesis to Deuteronomy, which really wasn't true. And certainly they had no time for all the other oral traditions that had massed themselves around the teaching of the Old Testament that the Pharisees so loved that later would be written down and called the, the Mishnah. They had no time for any of that. The problem was that they had become so convinced of themselves that they totally misinterpreted Scripture. That they, 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 they dismissed the miraculous. It just couldn't happen. That they, they did not believe in angels. And they certainly dispense with any notion of resurrection. 
So it's no wonder then that Jesus strongly rebukes them when they came to him with their very special, clever question that they had devised about uh, a woman who married all these different brothers, one dying after the other. And there in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus condemns them and says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So here are these people, they have a carefully guarded position of power and privilege at the very center of of Jewish society. But sadly, their intent to cling to power at all costs led them to ignore the power of God, dismiss the word of God, and not to see the presence of God in their midst in the person of Jesus. They neither knew the living word nor recognized his work. And maybe at some point they they did start out all right. Maybe they were idealists. Maybe they lived with integrity. But you see, there's a lesson you learn. That if you want to live consistently for Christ, if you want to live to honor God in all things, that costs you dearly. Jesus would prove this. In his faithfulness to his Father, he would be crucified. These men refused to, to believe him, and they were happy to compromise, they were happy to motivate, moder, modify their views. People are all too ready to do this. We see it in Peter here in this passage. He, he accommodates himself to the situation because he realizes that his life would be on the line if he professes Christ, so he changes his views. And that's what people do when they don't want to pay the price. Jesus would not do this. And died on the cross as a consequence. Dr. Alan Ross of Beeson Divinity School comments about the Sadducees. He says, there are Christians today who are very much like the Sadducees of old. Although they can't claim to be Christian, they do not actually believe in the resurrection, especially the resurrection of Jesus. And to them, doctrines of angels and demons are mythical expressions from a primitive mentality. Their form of Christianity has been submitted to modern reason with the result that a host of biblical teachings from miracles to rules for purity have been severed from the conservative interpretations and applications and given new focus. The problem is that many who believe like this are in positions of leadership in the churches, seminaries and denominations. They might not be wealthy, not all Sadducees were, but because they are well-educated, They seem to reflect an aristocratic view of themselves, that they are above the common Christian simplistic faith. Their education and their position have probably created stumbling blocks for their faith. But unfortunately, it has also impressed many others and gained for them a following. They claim to be able to retrieve the true core of Christianity may simply be a foil for rejecting what they are unable to believe or unwilling to practice. You see, whenever you don't believe in life after death, whenever this world is all there is to you, then you live for this world. You live for this moment. All there is is life now, which leads to compromise, which leads to pragmatism, which leads to getting ahead, staying ahead at all costs. Back in John 11, we see a meeting of the rulers of the Jewish people. 47-53 reads like this. 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered for the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Why did Jesus go to the cross? It was in part because the Sadducees were so concerned to maintain their place, to hold on to their power, and to retain their privilege at all costs. And anybody who was a threat to their survival had to be taken out. Anyone who would challenge their authority or make it uncertain would be put in his place with nails if necessary. That key word here is in verse 14. Expedient. Expedient. It was to their advantage that Jesus should die. And how little did they realize the full and and glorious truth of that statement. And their pursuit of that attitude of expediency at any cost. It's confirmed when you realize that, that the Jews of that age were particularly strict about laws regarding trial. Procedures for criminal cases, civil proceedings were all very carefully detailed and and they were fastidious about these things. And what happens here and throughout the records of the trial of Jesus is that every rule was trampled on. The Jews called themselves people of the law, people of Torah. But here is a kangaroo court. Rules cast aside. With their only goal to have Jesus crucified, dead and buried long before the Passover, the special Passover Sabbath that was coming. There are so many rules. Let me just highlight some of the rules that they had, the Jews had, that are cast aside, ignored in haste to have this man executed. No trials were to occur during night hours. Nothing before the morning sacrifice had been made. Two trials were not to occur on the eve of Sabbath or during festivals. Three, all trials were to be public. Secret trials were strictly forbidden. Four, all trials were to be held in the hall of judgment in the temple area. Five, capital cases where death sentence might be pronounced required a minimum of 23 judges. Six, an accused person could not be required to testify against himself. Seven, Conviction required the testimony of two to three witnesses that were in perfect alignment. Eight, witnesses for the prosecution were to be examined and cross-examined extensively. Nine, the high priest should not participate in the questioning. All their rules were trashed, all ignored because they must have their way. They must get their man. The comfort The power, the privilege they knew must not be upset. Little did they realize in just a few decades, in the year 70 AD, the Romans would come in, destroy the temple, bring to an end the sacrificial system, and eradicate the priesthood. 
this trial of Jesus was the result of men scheming in their corrupt power, jealousy guarding their little patch. And to make matters worse, we, we see their uh, position dressed up in robes of pretentious religious purity. If you read into to verse chapter 28, it says this, they, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Here they are, these men, so, so pious, so careful, they, they wouldn't want to cross the threshold of a Gentile's house and so defile themselves, make themselves unworthy of Passover. And yet they're plotting, conniving to kill an innocent man. They, they carefully guard some commandments and totally ignore others. I wonder if you've ever met people who do that or maybe at times you've done that yourself. I remember one man, I was in his home and he, he was proudly boasting that he had never worked on a, on a Sunday. He was a farmer and he said, you know, there's never been a tractor in one of my fields ever on the Lord's day. But all at the same time he was telling the story, he kept taking the Lord's name in vain. I'm thinking, you know, okay, you've got one out of ten right, but there's others, don't forget them. Bishop J.C. Ryle has written, Men who know they are wrong in one direction often struggle to make things right by excess of zeal in another. But that Christianity is worthless. That makes amends for the neglect of heart religion and practical holiness by an extravagant zeal for man-made ceremonies or outward forms. So we have the Sadducees trying Jesus, convicting him, desiring his death sentence. We've got to try and understand him. What does this mean? What's happening in this passage? Men are, are murdering Jesus to maintain their hold on the shadow. While Jesus is offering himself to death on the cross to provide freely available to them what is real and eternal. These men will stop at nothing to retain their profit from the corrupt temple practices. And yet Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? These weak men clung to power. But Jesus with unlimited power offers himself up in weakness. These men had a self-maintained security that would be short-lived. And would end for them in suffering. But Jesus had a short-lived suffering that would end in eternal security. You see, the Sadducees were not particularly bad men. They were simply fallen men. And fallen men do bad things. When they reject Jesus as their king. When we try to cling to power and the right to determine our own lives. We set ourselves on a pathway of eternal destruction. When we want to say how we will live, and when we will live, and what we will do with our lives without reference to Jesus, we condemn ourselves. And a few hours, just a few hours after these events, as with Aaron climbing a Mount Hor. So our great high priest would climb his mountain, Calvary, 
there to die. His robe would be taken from him. There he would breathe his last. And his victory, won in weakness and in pain, allows him to reign forever. So the application of, of this text, I hope you can see it, is the question of who, who do you choose to live for? Is your life determined by this desire to live for self? Or is it sold out in your service of the Savior? Do you live for self-preservation or for Christ-glorification? Whose rules do you live for? Do you live by rules that will ensure for you in the short-term benefit? But in the long-term, it costs you everything eternally. Or do you willingly lose out not laying down your life for Jesus so that eternally you will be guaranteed that wonderful benefit of life that lasts forever? Let's pray together. Father God, we look to you now and we seek your face. As we think about these men who lived 2,000 years ago, who had such positions of power and comfort, that they had to maintain it at all costs, including the cost of the death of your son. Father, we need to examine our own hearts and the life of the the way in which they lived. Their self-promotion, their self-preservation was all that mattered. And Father, we do need forgiveness because often we live in that way. We want to put ourselves first. We want to look out for ourselves as number one. We want to buy into this culture as uh, individualism. But as long as I'm all right, well, who cares about anyone else? We want to dismiss your laws, your purposes, your plans, as long as we get peace and prosperity in our day. Forgive us, Father, that so often this is the air we breathe. This is the world we live in. And these are the choices we make. Lord, we see Jesus so different. Laying down his life. Sacrificing himself. Not counting the cost. Knowing that there was better beyond. His confidence placed in you, his father. May we live such lives as you would strengthen and enable May we want to honor you in all that we do. May we not live in the world's way, but be distinctive from this world that may discover it indeed, may so disturb the world that they would want to harm us as they sought to harm Jesus. You've told us that if we choose to follow you, we do take up our cross. There is a price to pay. But Lord, give us courage, the empowering, the enabling that is spirit-led. That we might live for Jesus and not for self. That we might receive the well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our days. Because of our faithfulness to you. In a fearful and God-hating world. To the honor of the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen.